First Peter chapter five, verse one to five. So I exalt the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Some of the greatest minds of Christianity、uh, throughout history have believed that the fundamental human problem is pride. So even if you think that maybe that's too specific,、uh, I think a strong enough case can be made that pride is a deep human problem, and those who think it is the fundamental one see it as as the root of so many other of our problems and issues, and it infects everything.、Uh, and therefore, Peter, whose book we're looking at, we've been looking at this since the fall. He's writing to the church. To talk about a whole new way of life that comes through a spiritual work that God does in us, and it changes us. Now it changes us more gradually than we would like, and there's still work to do.、Uh, but for example, in the book, he talks about how we go back into society and behave differently. And so,、uh, maybe a month or two ago, we were looking at a section where he talks about being citizens. Under different governments, or being servants or employees, or being in an institution like marriage.、Um, look, sometimes we have opportunity to change the structures of society or to influence them. But but most Bible readers throughout most history show up with the structures in place, and then the question is, how do we navigate them? So Peter wants us to be in the world a little bit differently.、He、describes us as exiles, sojourners. We we're here, but. But we actually have a different way of doing things, and, and therefore, even if the world is not ordered well, we should still adapt in different ways. Now, in the passage we're looking at today, he's speaking into the church. So the church is meant to take new forms and to be influenced by Jesus. And so, his words are mostly in the passage exhorting elders. And yes, this has an application to anyone as they're aging and maturing. Um, but but specifically, he seems to have in view the the appointed leaders of a particular community. Now, at our church, Emmanuel, we currently have four elders, but since、uh, there are more than four gathered here, rather than speaking to them and having you overhear that, I will encourage us as elders to maybe、uh, do some thinking about this passage and self-examination. But I want to highlight how pride infects even Christian community. Because if you are to be a Christian, you are called to be part of a community with elders,、uh, where you would be a member,、um, and pride can go in and ruin that. And you see in the passage, there's a warning about pride that then continues next week. So next week, 
I'll be talking a little bit more about pride, but here I'm talking about the church context. Because the problem is, all of us have pride in us. Uh, and it's in, it could be in seed form that, that through various experiences, our successes and failures, that could be affected and become more influential. And there's this dynamic that we constantly need to watch. What it means is we can idealistically say the church is meant to be different. But the reality is the church is a collection of people. We bring our pride into the church, and that causes problems. And so the church should be a radically different model, but we aren't always, but we're constantly called to come back. What does it mean to be like Jesus, to follow him? And then how does the church actually become an alternate model? So my hope is that not only will some of you say, well, what does it look like to be part of a church in a healthy way? But that an understanding of that will help you go out into the workplace, into your families, um, into your community, and say, yeah, there is something that's different. And if I could um, grow in humility, that would actually help my contribution. So in talking about this today, there's some imagery that I, that I, as I was thinking about it, that I'm offering to you to help you think through things this week. But this is not definitive. This is just... Uh, <laughs> an installment for this week, and so don't, let, don't embed this in your mind as how the Bible works. But the image I have is, is sort of humanity in our pride wanting to go up, wanting to get to the top. And so in the Bible, the book of Genesis, an example would be uh, the story of the Tower of Babel. Let's come together and use all of our skill and wisdom to, to build something up that will elevate us. Pride seems to be traditionally uh, a part of the interpretation of what went wrong there. And we still do that. We want to go straight to the top. As I'm grappling with how is Christianity different, Jesus meets us often at the bottom and says, follow me. And so we move forward. So the moving forward, though, as I'm imagining it, is a little bit of an incline, which means that, that the call to follow Jesus starts to get a little bit harder because we're actually going up. He's actually taking us up, but he's not in our pride allowing us to go straight to the top to be better than others. But he's calling us out of our pride, but he is bringing us up to something better. And so with that image, I want that to frame how I walk us through this passage. And the first thing uh, in highlighting the problem is, is humanity trying to go up. And this happens across the board, and it will affect us as Christians, and it will make its way into the church. Humanity wants to go up. We have selfish ambition. So why is this a problem? And one thing for any of you who believe that there is a God, verse 5 should be enough to warn us. Verse 5 says, God opposes the proud. If there is a God and God is opposed to the proud, that right there should make us say, we need to deal with this. We don't want to remain opposed to God. We want to be with God. We want to be walking with God, uh, not making God our enemy. So uh, pride is clearly a problem. But what is the problem? A modern dictionary definition of pride could be something like feeling satisfied in something you've accomplished. What's wrong with that? From a Christian perspective, nothing. Um, the Bible is not against confidence. If confidence means you've done something a number of times to see that you have an ability in it, so you now go into future situations not afraid because you have that ability, that's good. Uh, ambition. Wanting to see things be better, wanting to grow personally, that's good. Um, pride comes and infects all of these things. So the Bible doesn't warn about ambition, but about selfish ambition. 
The Bible doesn't warn about confidence, but it, it warns about arrogance because we are so overconfident that the warning is don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. If you can do something, be glad you can do it. But don't start to think because others don't do it as well that now that sets you apart. That's where it becomes a problem. Pride as I'm thinking of it today is, is this radical self-centered focus on me. And as most of us imagine pride in terms of arrogance, um, looking down on others, sort of the classic definitions, what, what the Greeks might call hubris. As we think of pride, we tend to think of it as, as thinking very highly of yourself, but the danger of pride is when you're inflated in the way that any bubble works as we're thinking about, is there a recession coming, the economic bubble, once you pop it, you realize that overinflation brings you down too low. Sometimes when we think we're better or we ought to be better or we're entitled, when, when the world doesn't organize itself around us, we could have a, a period of feeling that we are the absolute worst and we're nobody. Now, is that humility? No. Uh, see, confidence is not pride. Thinking that you are the absolute worst is not the model of humility. Both of those are corrupted forms of a radical self-centeredness. And so pride is more than self-centeredness, but, but to try to, to quickly get it at what I think is part of the problem as Christians read the Bible and talk about pride. That's what we're talking about, is the kind of self-centered arrogance where you're always seeing yourself in relation to others, and you have to be better than them to feel good about yourself, and if you're not, it doesn't matter what you're actually able to do, but you feel terrible about yourself. That problem makes its way into society, turns us against one another, and we all have to grapple with this in our hearts. Um, C.S. Lewis has a chapter in Mere Christianity. It's a short chapter. It's worth reading on this topic. If you go through the index, he doesn't say the chapter's on pride. I forget what he calls it, but it's something like the greatest sin. Uh, he says this. He says, pride gets no pleasure in having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer, or better looking than others. And so one of the things Lewis says is human beings are competitive, and when there's limited resources, we naturally turn against one another. Pride, the problem with pride is, it's not an issue of limited resources. You may have far more than you even want, and yet you're still turning against others because you want more. That's the danger. Uh, the danger is it, it is cannibalizing. So let me look at how church leaders, elders, are encouraged to be free in the gospel, to be responsible, and to lead. Uh, Peter tells the elders of the church to exercise oversight. Now, there's a danger here. Wait a second. Are you over others? We need to be very careful here. Um, and he, he, he gives three things that they are to do, but draws a contrast with the problem. The first in verse 2 as he says, you're to lead not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And see, false humility would say, never step up and take responsibility. If you're willing, you must be arrogant. Well, well, Peter's saying God would have you be willing because this is about responsibility, not about dominance or respect. And therefore, the problem is not leadership. The problem is proud human beings who seek leadership for the wrong reason. So what's the issue with compulsion? Well, there could be a variety of things. I'm going to focus on one example as we're talking about pride. Um, 
Pride in relation to God has a sense of, I don't really need God or I don't need him all the time. I'm, I'm sufficiently fine on my own. Maybe in a couple of ways not or maybe not at all. I don't even need to believe in God. But in relationship to other people, there's a sense of needing to be better or needing to be in control of them. Um, compulsion sometimes comes from the savior complex. The world needs me. And we don't always use this language, but sometimes what we're really thinking is, who's going to get these idiots together? And we don't use that language. We look at it and we say, oh, these poor incompetent people, I need to come in and save them. Now, being a solution to problems, do that. Thinking you are the solution <laughs> to every problem, that the world needs you, that God needs you, that's where we are careful. You don't become a leader in the church because without you, God's mission will die. Um, it's not under compulsion. You don't have to do it. It's not that God doesn't need us in terms of he uses human beings, but, but we are not the savior. And being clear on that helps us to make a willing choice. I don't have to do it, and therefore it's not that I'm being guilted, I'm being forced, or I feel like it's the unfortunate burden of being the best and the brightest. I need to step into leadership. Instead, we say, I don't have to do this, but, but this is good. <laughs> I, I want more for this community, and so I will put myself out there and take responsibility. That's a different paradigm, not just for the church, but for society, but here the focus is on the church. He goes on to say, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So again, when we think about we're being called to humility, sometimes our vision of humility is somebody who's afraid and has no ambition and wants to be left alone. And yet there's an eagerness here. No, there's something that compels you to go into the world, but not pride. There's a, there's a different way, but it's hard for us to understand. But one of the things that, that is just an obvious function of pride is shameful gain. Should you want gain? Yes. Shameful gain, the kind of thing that makes bribery a temptation for judges, for admissions officers, for Hollywood executives, people in positions of power who will then use people for the things that they want. That is harmful. That is prideful. Uh, no Christian in whatever service should be doing it for shameful gain. Certainly not in the church. And then it goes on finally, not domineering, this is still verse two, uh, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is a very different take on the, the nature of power. Is there an authority and a power? Yes, but it, it comes with the maturity of being an example, of putting yourself out there, not of domineering. Control is a function of pride. So sometimes I need to take control because of the savior complex. Uh, sometimes I'm just so me-centered that to, I need to organize the world around myself. And it's been interesting when you think of the various stereotypical scandals in the church. With church leaders, they're usually financial and sexual. It's interesting in the last couple of years, the domineering leader has been uh, in focus as, as easily rising the ranks of the church. Uh, that's not the scriptural criteria. Uh, dominance is not the way of Christ. But following the way of Christ, following his example, shapes us differently. And 
So this attitude that we have, um, verse five, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And so it's a problem being a leader, but there's a problem all, for all of us who are followers. Some of us are naturally rebellious. I will do any number of things until you tell me to do it. <laughs> and now I don't want to, simply because I don't like being told what to do. Or I just don't want to follow along because I'm anxious, nervous, whatever the case is. This dynamic of a healthy community of leaders who are not arrogant, of church members who are uh, somewhat trusting and understanding. Now again, you need various safeguards here, but the safeguards need to be against pride infecting us. So how do you know if pride is at work? C.S. Lewis says something that I think that is helpful. He says, the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you wanna find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their oar in? I don't know what that means. Or patronize me or show off. He says, it is because I want to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed that someone else is being the big noise. And so all of us, to some degree, have to battle that self-centered orientation and, and we're called to grow into greater maturity, greater stature, greater ability. But we're called to do it with humility. That's actually possible. But it seems so impossible in terms of knowing your own heart, looking at human history, and even thinking the church can be different, but finding out that we're not always. And so we need something different. And so Jesus winds up meeting us often at the bottom. So here's the second section I want to move into that I'm calling beginning at the bottom. Um, pride creates a bubble and, and the danger for you, it's, look, we could talk about the damage you'll do to other people, but in terms of your own experience, you can't grow artificially in pride, have your ego be inflated and not at some point have that poked and be utterly demoralized. Now, there are different ways that Jesus meets and calls people. And sometimes it's in the greatness of going on, Jesus shows you something greater. And so there's something inherently exciting. Human beings are foolish enough that a typical Christian story is when we're actually on our way down or we've hit some kind of bottom. It doesn't have to be that way. That's not everyone's story. But it's that sense of now that I no longer feel better than others and don't have confidence in that, now that I no longer have an assurance on my future based on the things that I've bought into, the vulnerability of not knowing how to exist there is overwhelming. And then sometimes we're able to hear the call of Jesus. We're able to see that he says, follow me, and, and then the problem is we're still stuck in thinking, you know, he can't possibly want me, because <laughs> it's the same paradigm. Surely if he's inviting me to be part of the church, it must be because I'm an attribute, not because Jesus is gracious, that actually Jesus is generous, that he actually comes to us in our pride and wants to lead us to something better, to keep us from damaging ourselves and our world. We have such trouble with that. And yet that is where Jesus often comes and meets us at the bottom. I want to say something about the shepherding imagery in this passage. So he's talking about elders, but he's, he's using the language of shepherds. And you, you find this throughout the Bible. And if you only read the New Testament, maybe you would think of it's just, a, it's just the context where if you read about shepherding, my understanding in ancient culture, shepherds were not necessarily admired as a career. And so, um, you know, maybe shepherds were we'll look down to as kind of sort of dirty, smelly kind of types by the nature of their work 
I don't know exactly, but, but if you go beyond the New Testament and you look at the Bible as a whole, um, the Bible makes clear from the beginning um, God's uniqueness, his unique greatness. It's not pride, it's not arrogance. It's the reality of who God is. And when we see that, it's actually good. When we don't envy it, <laughs> the more we see of the greatness of God, the more we grow in humility and, and greatness. But what we're told is we always need to see that and we need to follow God through life. And yet we need help. And so we find various helpers. God is the one we're following. And who are those helpers? Well, in the ancient context, the king was a, the key leader to organize a society. Moses, uh, in Deuteronomy, before he is to depart, is giving all sorts of instructions. And he says, the day will come that you will ask for a king. But our nation is not to be like other nations. Other nations have kings, and what are the nature of kings? They have chariots, armies, they have harems, they have uh, great possessions and wealth and palaces. Is it different today than other in the United States than it has been in other contexts? No. But Moses says, but, but this nation should be different. The king is not to, to be known by his army or his sexual prowess or his great possessions. Um, but the king is to have a heart for God. And so what is the model of kingship in the Bible? Well, Moses, who gives these words, read about Moses. Moses was a shepherd. And what was his job to, to dominate the people? No, there was a, a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. God was leading them, but Moses met with God. And then he stood above them and, and helped encourage them. He shepherded them for 40 years in the wilderness. And then in the days of Samuel, if you read 1 Samuel, the people say, we want a king like the nations. This invisible God being our king is not helping us because it's not intimidating the nations that don't see him. So could we have a king? And Samuel the prophet sees this as a rejection of God as king. Well, they take Saul, who it seemed looked like a king, tall, handsome, a warrior. It didn't work out very well. God said, now find somebody after my own heart, David, the shepherd. There's something here about these people that don't look like the leaders of the nations that, that follow God and that enables them to help others follow God. You know, this week was St. Patrick's Day. For those of you who are Irish or like celebrating with the Irish, what are of the top three menu items? Shepherd's pie is one of them. What's in a shepherd's pie? Meat. People make it with beef because beef is more affordable, chopped beef. There's a culinary argument among modern cooks that if it's beef, it is a cottage pie. What is it that makes a shepherd's pie a shepherd's pie? It must be that these shepherds love to sit and eat it. It's lamb. It's the sheep in the pie that makes it a shepherd's pie. That's what we do. We lead the flock in order to eat them. When Jesus comes and he says, I am the good shepherd, we think, what a nice guy who walks around and spends time with animals. He's saying he is the king that God's people have needed and have been waiting for. And he says, the difference between me and every other hireling that you have seen is they will run and they will take advantage, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And therefore, there's a king that we don't recognize because he is not like the kings of the nations. He did not come with power 
and honor and glory. But here's the remarkable thing about the Christian story. Human beings are at the bottom and we aspire to be at the top. Did Jesus need to earn his kingdom and power and glory? The Bible makes a radical claim, no. Uh, There was an incarnation, he existed before the foundations of the earth in power and glory. The Christian story is he descended. He came down taking the form of a human being and he didn't come with, with the trappings of what this world would admire and respect, but he came as the one whose humiliation was not simply to live as a misunderstood human being, but as the one who would lay down his life for the very proud sheep who would reject and condemn him. And so the Christian story is different. When Jesus comes to the bottom to call us, he's not calling us in his arrogance, you can do better, but he's showing the nature of God who pursues the wandering, the lost, the foolish, those whose pride have led them astray and have put them in great danger. Jesus is the one who alone fits the criteria of somebody that we can fully trust and follow. In the whole of history, the whole of humanity, there is one good shepherd. What's important in this passage is to make sure the church has their eyes on him. And so in verse 1, Peter says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, he saw both of those. He saw Jesus condemned and crucified, but he saw him alive from the dead, ascended to heaven. It is those two things that we can't keep together because we want the ascent, we want the greatness, and we need to ignore the ordinary, the marginalized. Or we want to get with the weak and the broken, but then we never take them anywhere. Jesus sees suffering, uh, Peter sees suffering and glory in Jesus, which then helps us to walk away from our pride because he suffers on our behalf, but he actually offers us a share in his glory, and so he calls us to actually grow and to move up. Peter becomes an interesting example. You know, there's lots of passages in the Bible to show his courage, uh, how admirable he was, his effectiveness. But the New Testament is very interesting. If we're going to trust Peter, it shows us that he was a human being like us. He had periods of doubt. He had periods of overconfidence. There's numerous places you can go. The most famous is where he denied Jesus. And I'm reading a portion of that just because uh, I want to highlight something that you may miss, but I think is there uh, in the interaction between Jesus and Peter. This is from Matthew 26, starting verse 31. Jesus says to his followers, his disciples now, this is the end of the Gospels. He's about to be rejected. They don't know this. He says, you will all fall away from me this night, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I mostly think Peter was a sincere, convicted man who said, I'm committed. The danger is he didn't think he was like them. If they all fall away, I will not. That's at least an indication pride may have been at work. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Spoiler alert. 
He denies him three times within 12 hours of this conversation. It was that pride. He didn't understand. When Jesus, the great shepherd, is saying, Peter, you don't know what I'm facing. Peter said, but I'm not like the others, Jesus. <laughs> don't think that I'm like these dumb people that misunderstand you. Um, John Stott, uh, on pass, uh, commenting on this, says, was there ever a morning when the crowing of the cock did not remind Peter again of Jesus? I don't know the answer to that question, but how interesting, every day when your alarm is the rooster next door, to remember uh, just when I thought that I was the one who was different, I was gonna be the one who was gonna put Jesus in the throne, and I wouldn't listen, and he told me that before the rooster crows three times, now every time the rooster crowed, what do you think of that? Maybe not, but they're built into the start of his day as a reminder, Peter, don't be cocky. And then you know John 21, three times, but Peter, do you love me? And, and we tend to connect John and Matthew. He denies him three times, do you love me? Yes. And his response is, feed my sheep. Um, Peter, the, the proud one, who has a constant reminder that he is unworthy, is given responsibility and leadership in the church. And what is it that readies him for that? It's not that he learned about his own weakness. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, do you see how stubborn you can be? He says, Peter, do you love me? The way through pride is love for Christ. Christ meets us at the bottom where nobody will. He doesn't come to ridicule us. He comes to call us to follow him and to go to a better place. And the indication is not, can you do it? Do you know what you're signing up for? Are you worthy? The indication is, do you love him? And that's important because you have to understand the reason Jesus goes to that place is because he loves you. And when you grasp that, then you can follow without worrying about whether or not you belong, whether or not you're an asset, whether or not other Christians are better than you, or whether or not the church is better than the world. We have a good shepherd who laid down his life for us, the sheep, the question is, do you love him? And the way to grow in love for him is to understand how he's loved you. And when people mature in that, then you're ready to start to disciple others, to take up leadership, and for some of you to be elders in the church. So how do we move forward? Uh, so Jesus meets us at the bottom, but he brings us forward. Here's the last section. God gives grace. That is so important. Because if God is going to call every proud human being to follow him, he needs to deal with our pride. And so we need grace. And so what happens, life is a series of humiliations. Humilia humility is good. Humiliation is not. So verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So don't get stuck in humiliation, but, but the thing that you hate, that you don't want others to see, don't cover it up with your resume. But in Christ, clothe yourself with his humility, and there's grace for you. So if you understand grace, if you understand his love, you could go forward. So now, here's the word to the elders, verse when I exhort the elders among you, verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
exercising oversight. So that word oversight, the idea of an elder, the language assumes a certain maturing in life, a certain experience. If you're 12, you may be very ahead in years, but don't lead the church yet. (laughs) Deal with those difficult people in high school. Deal with that college that you wanted to get into that you didn't. Deal with having to change your major, all of those things. And deal with it in the gospel. And at some point, uh, where grace is at work, you will grow stronger. And then you will be an asset to the church. So we need to be patient. So being an elder, um, oversight is not just for anyone and everyone, but it's, it's a function of maturing. Uh, but the key here in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears... And so here I want to say four things about the nature of the church. But they're rooted in this idea, Jesus is still the shepherd. It's not that he went ahead and now he appoints shepherds, but he's the chief shepherd. We're keeping our eyes on him, and then we're helping one another follow him. That's the nature of Christian community. So the first thing is the, that I want to point out, just these four subpoints: the humility of leadership. Um, Peter, if he would have written this letter before Matthew 26 was written. He might have said, I'm Peter the Rock. That's what Jesus called him. Or maybe without that incident or without the Spirit, he might have said, have you read the book of Acts, the first 11 chapters? Who's the star of the book of Acts? So do you trust me? Do you see what I did? Do you see my boldness in the day of Pentecost? Verse 1, I exhort the elders as a fellow elder. He's an overseer. He's Peter. He saw the power and the glory. He writes to the church and says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm one of you. I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's important. Uh, Another thing is the plurality of leadership. There are different church models, and each has its advantages. Peter says, I exhort the elders. He's assuming we need to be careful about just having one great person, but we need a group of maturing people together because there's a chief shepherd there is a head of the church (laughs) it's not me Christ is the head of the church there are a group of elders that have our eyes on him that are trying to to move us forward there's a plurality here Uh, third thing to highlight there's a humility of the flock Um, all of us need to know we have a lot to learn and we need a community that will help us and so we need to be exhorting one another And we need to find people that have matured and walked in the ways and have been tested. They don't know everything. There's one hero. It's not any of us, but we should recognize there are some people who are godly and they're wise. Don't blindly follow them. Fully trust Christ. But don't think you could do it on your own. And so um, when I think of, of the church as a community moving forward, I was thinking this week, some years ago, my family was on vacation. This was when one of my kids was about four years old. And we went to some event in a small town that we had never been. And it was an old town, so it had these very narrow streets. And we got there, and there was to be this procession that everybody that had gathered, uh, you know, whatever, several hundred people, were, were going to follow these musicians in the front, and I had no idea where we were going. It wasn't announced in advance. We just got there for this thing, and then it was, okay, it's time, let's go. And we thought, we're going to follow along. Now, when you're four and you're in a crowd and things are tight, what do you see? Butts. That's largely, sorry. There it is. That's your view. 
So, so here's this four-year-old, uh, and I need to hold his hand, and I need to keep contact with him because my main thing is not to get to the to the great thing, but to not lose him. <laughs> but I also want to follow along, and so, so, what does it mean? I'm, I'm more aged than this four-year-old, so I have a vantage sight. So he can't see, but if he's holding on to me, and if he trusts me, uh, he will go with me. So part of that was simply, as we're going, I'm needing to keep my eyes on where we're going, and I'm bringing you along. But occasionally, there would be this thing that I would want him to see, so I'd pick him up so he could see for himself. And the model of Christianity is we're, we're all moving forward together. And we need Jesus Christ because he's our leader. But the idea is there are some people that have lived with Jesus long enough that they're able to see him in a way that not everybody could in challenging situations. This is where we need to hold each other's hands. Let's move forward as a community. And sometimes we need to say, I see him. I'm with you. Let's keep going. Sometimes he's so great we need to pick people up and say, do you see him? And when we're doing that as a community, when that's what leadership looks like, when we're saying, Jesus Christ is so good and glorious that I, I want you to make sure that you don't walk away, and I also want to make sure that every now and then you see it, so that you grow and mature in one day that you can bring others along with you. It's a whole different way of doing things. And so the last thing I want to say is we're a motivated community. Humility that we're charged to is not to say, you know what? That's it, we don't want anything, we're detached, we have no care in the world, we're complacent. Verse four says, if you do this, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, it's given to you, you don't earn it. But this is not about showing how unproud you are by being committed to doing nothing. Uh, don't get caught up in this self-centeredness where you need to be better than others, where you can't be worse than others. What happens when we understand the grace and the love of Christ is pride becomes clearly identifiable as useless in our lives. Not simply is it harmful, but it just doesn't belong. Why am I so worried about me <laughs> when Jesus is the, the shepherd? He's the one leading me. I could, I could stop worrying about me, and I could stop envying or hating the others around me, but I could follow him, and we could move forward and therefore you recognize if there is a crown of glory given by the one who laid down his life, I, I could keep going. I don't need this pride. I could let go of, of my demand to make a life for myself and realize that this is not helping me. It's destroying me. It's destroying everyone around me. And you don't conquer pride as an act of the will. You conquer pride by meeting the one who will come to you when you're at your least. And by grace and with love will still say, don't give up, follow me. And as we're doing that, uh, as we mature in that, um, we will stay with the Good Shepherd and hopefully help others stay with the Good Shepherd. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you that in this confusing world there is one, if only one, that we can fully trust, the one who lay down his life, the one who does sit enthroned in glory, and the one who came in order that we would be with him. Lord, we confess that we are foolish, wandering, judgmental, prideful, all of these things, Lord. 
we don't want it, or we don't yet know how much we don't want it, but Lord, we are going to pray for something greater. We pray for grace. We pray that your love for us would endure. We pray that despite our being unworthy, we would not be left in humiliation, but that we would be clothed by your grace so that humility would take its shape in us. And we pray this for Emmanuel. May that be true of our church. In our united identity, and as we go into the world each week to try to do this in a world uh, that needs humble servants, Lord, may we all take that task and uh, by your spirit mature us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.